1 John, uh, the author of 1 John, I'm sure many of you can guess it, it's John. Uh, and I can uh, understand John, he makes things pretty simple. His first book is called John, his second book is called 1 John, his third book is called 2 John, and his fourth book is called 3 John, right? And then finally he changes things up again, and he calls the last book the Revelation, right? Revelation of Jesus Christ. These are all the books that John has authored. John, Luke, and Paul, each of them write about 20 to 30% of the New Testament. So these three men have written basically everything we have there in the New Testament. A couple things about our author. John, he was the son of Zebedee. If you remember, Jesus called him and his brother the sons of thunder, right? They're both from Zebedee. Their father, Zebedee, owned a fishing business that was doing pretty well. And then him and his brother, James, were working with their father. During this time, he became a follower of John the Baptist, following him, going out into the wilderness to hear what John the Baptist had to say. And then he became a believer in Jesus being the Christ, Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus being the chosen one of God. Later, he would become a disciple, and then finally, he would become an apostle. John was part of a very special group. Not only was he a part of the 12 disciples, but he was a part of three specific disciples who spent extra time with Jesus. John, James, and Peter oftentimes would be called together to be there with Jesus Extra time, special places, Mount of Transfiguration, and other things like that. He's one of the pillars of the New Testament church. He's one of the main characters throughout the book of Acts. And he's the only apostle who lived and died until his old age. He died of natural causes. All the other apostles, they died being put to death for their faith. But John is the only apostle to actually die of old age. It's interesting, he's also the only apostle, the only disciple there at Jesus' crucifixion. The rest of them had run, had been fearful. We know that Jesus gives him the responsibility of taking care of Mary after he passes away, after he dies on the cross and he's then raised into heaven. So John was a very special man. I don't know how often you had that feeling in high school. I rarely had that feeling of no one else in the class understanding the subject except you, right? I was part of the larger group. I wasn't the one, right? But John, it almost seems as he's the only disciple who actually got it. At the very least, he's the first disciple that actually got it, right? Actually understood why Jesus had come, what was his mission, what was his kingdom actually about. Later on, all the disciples would get it, right? Except Judas. Uh, but John, he would call himself throughout his gospel the disciple who Jesus loved. Many people, they would say, he's the disciple, he's the apostle of love, right? Faith, hope, and love. Paul, they would say, is the apostle of faith. Peter, they would say, is the apostle of hope. And John is the apostle of love. At this point, John, he's an old man. He's about 90, 91 years old. And he's writing this book even after he was all alone on the island of Patmos where he had written the book of Revelation, making 1 John the oldest book here written in the Bible. This was written while he was the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And he truly has a heart for the church and for the work of God and of Jesus taking place. The different books that he's written, the Gospel of John, John looks back at the historical account of the life of Jesus. Looking back 
at the historical account of the life of Jesus. In 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he looks at the present life of Christians and how Jesus should be at the center of our life as believers. And then finally, the book of Revelation, or the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, is looking into the future with the prophecy of Jesus Christ. So the Gospel of John looking back at the life of Christ, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John looking at the present life of Christ in the body of Christ in believers. And then finally, the book of Revelation looking into the future and the prophecies of Jesus Christ. And on Wednesday nights, as we've been going through 1st and 2nd Peter, we see how quickly false prophets and false teachers rose up within the church. Jesus had just died, and right within his death, the Pharisees begin paying off soldiers saying, hey, say that the disciples came and stole the body. So there's false teachers rising. We looked at 2 Peter chapter 2 on Wednesday and just the dangers of false teachers and how they work. And here in 1 John, the same problems are happening. There are false teachers, false doctrines going around. The chief one at this time is known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism in the Greek is literally to know, to know. And I don't know if you've ever had someone that says, hey, I know you know some of this subject, but I really, really know this subject. And if you would only pay $39.99 for my package, then you would really know what you need to know about this subject, right? Or, hey, I know you know about this subject, but if you would buy my book at $19.99, then you would really know what you need to know on this subject. Sometimes even within Christianity, right, instead of believers going and spreading the gospel to unbelievers, they want to spread to you the gospel of their higher knowledge of Christ to show how they are more superior than you are in your knowledge of Christ, right? And it's the same problem going on today. People claiming to know more about God and now feeling superior or more prideful in their knowledge of God. These Gnostics, what they believed is that all matter is evil. The chairs are evil. Our clothes are evil. Your dog is evil. Cats are evil. Right? We all believe that. Maybe not, right? But all matter is evil, right? All matter is evil. So because all matter is evil, they believed only spirit can be good. All matter is evil. Only spirit can be good. So they believed that indeed that Jesus was God, but that Jesus did not come as a physical man. Instead, he was some type of phantom, some type of hologram, some type of spirit going around and moving around. These Gnostics, they would break into different sects, and some of them believed that because Jesus was only spirit and all matter was evil, it didn't matter what you did with your physical body because at the end of the day, God only cares about your spirit. So you could sin however you want, but at the end of the day, God only cares about your spirit, right? Don't we hear similar things like that today? Doesn't matter how you live, at the end of the day, God looks at your heart, right? And it's not talking about your heart, going to the doctor, how clogged or not clogged it is, right? It's talking about your spirit. That at the end of the day, the world says, hey, you can live however you want, but God, he's the only one that can judge our hearts, right? And John, he's going to address these false doctrines and false teachings head on all throughout 1 John. And because he's going to address these things head on, we are going to learn what God truly looks like. Who God truly is and what God truly looks like because they were creating false Jesuses, false gods, right? 
Again, similar to today. How many people, they don't want to go directly to the Bible for their definition of Jesus, but they want to go to their emotions and they create their own form of Jesus. They go to their experiences and they create their own, own form of Jesus. They go to their sins, which they like, and it's amazing. Their Jesus really likes their sins, right? Everybody else's sins, their Jesus doesn't like, but their sins, Jesus is okay with. And now people have created their own Jesus, right? Their own God. And now here in 1 John, we're going to see who God really is. And because we see who God really is, a child of God will look like their father. So what we can gather is if God looks this way, I should be looking this way as well, right? Maybe you look at past baby pictures. There's this funny thing that happens with newborns. Everybody just wants to decide who the baby looks like, right? Nobody knows why, but everybody just does it, right? Does it look like you? Does it look like you? It's the in-law, it's the aunt, it's the this, it's the that, right? Nobody knows. We're going to find out, right? Relax. But with us, we should have some type of family resemblance to our father or to our big brother, Jesus. So we're going to learn not only who God is and what he looks like, but we're going to learn what a real Christian looks like versus what a fake Christian looks like. So the first characteristic we see of God, it's found in verse 5 of chapter 1. And the first characteristic that John gives us is that God is light. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 7, he tells us, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So again, the first characteristic is that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And now hopefully we here as believers, as true children of God, we need to be children of the light because our father is light. If you would, let's turn to John chapter 8. Again, John is basically the first book. First John is the sequel to the Gospel of John. So many of the cross-references will go back to John. But there in John chapter 8, John gives us Jesus himself speaking to these same truths. And in John chapter 8, we'll look at verse 12. And it reads, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So again, Jesus says that he is the light of this world. And now we are following him. We're not going to walk in darkness. We're not going to be in habitual sin. We're not going to be clinging to sin and the darkness of this world and trying to say it's okay and God's okay with this because Jesus is saying, hey, I am the light. Anyone who follows me is not going to walk in darkness, but they're going to have, they're going to possess the light of life. In John chapter 9, verse 5, the chapter to your right, in verse 5, Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Later on, you could just write it down. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Then he would tell us that you are, we are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. So again, the mark of a true child of God is to live a life of godliness and a life of holiness. 
not in order to work our way into heaven, but because we have been adopted, because we are a son or daughter of God, our nature has changed. God himself has changed that within us. So now it's not we trying to work ourselves up to God. God has worked himself down to us and now changed us. And now we just have to walk in those truths. If you would, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 and 21, Paul gives us a truth here of what Jesus has done for each and every one of us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 and verse 21, Paul tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Verse 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, we possess the light of God in our lives if we are a son or daughter of God. Now we just need to walk in that light. We just need to walk in that truth. Uh, listening to Sandy Adams, he says, it's basically a spiritual suntan. That's basically what we need, right? Some of you during the summer, you're going to get tanner and tanner. Some of you during the summer, you're, your tan is just redder and redder, right? But how do we get these things? By having exposure to the sun, by having exposure to the light. And now what we need to have as believers is to have exposure to the light. And the more time we spend exposed to the Lord and Him exposing the light and His Word upon our lives, the more we're going to look like Him. Right? We just went through the book of Exodus and when Moses comes down from the mountain, they put that veil on his face. They cover his face because it was glowing, right? We joke around, the people in the tent, they just wanted to go to sleep, so they just put a cover on his face, right? And that's what happened. But the real reason, Paul tells us, the reason why they covered Moses' face is so that he would not be ashamed when people could tell that the glow was fading away. When people could realize, Moses, it's been a long time since you spent time with God up on that mountain, right? You're starting to look more and more like yourself, more, less and less like God. So for us, as that child of God, we need to have that light of God within us, which he places within us, but now we need to spend time in the light of God. The second characteristic of God that John gives us here in 1 John is that God is love. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, you could turn there. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, he tells us, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So again, the second characteristic of God is that God is love. And now for us, as sons and daughters of God, the second mark of a true child of God is that we have to have love. We need to be loving. We need to possess the love of God. There in verse 11 in chapter 4, he continues, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. In verse 20 and 21, he says, If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For if he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. If you remember John chapter 13 verse 35, Jesus tells us, By this all men will know that you are my disciples 
if you have love for one another. Again, family, we should have a love for the body of Christ because we've all been adopted even though we did not deserve it. That's what all of us should possess. That's what each and every one of us should have. Again, I hope none of you here, you you started coming to the 11 o'clock service because you couldn't stand somebody else that was going to the 9 o'clock service with you, right? Oh, man, this guy's going to the 9, so I'm going to start going to the 11, right? Hopefully there's no marriages like that here tonight, right? Husband goes to the 9, wife goes to the 11. I hope not, right? Got to talk with George and Barbara after service, right? But again, we need to have a love for one another. God's word tells us. John tells us that if you hate your brother, you are a liar saying that you love God. Again, in view of God's love and grace and goodness to us, we need to have that same love and goodness towards others. And now it's not the love of this world, right? What's the love of this world? I'm going to be nice to you in hopes that you're going to be nice to me. That's what the love of this world is. I'm going to be nice to you so that you'll be nice to me, you'll be my friend, you'll give me something that I want. You'll pay for my meal. You'll be with me so I'm not lonely. But if you're ever mean to me, then I'm going to be mean back to you. That's what this world is. But God's love is selfless. It doesn't matter how we have treated God. God is going to love us the same way. And now after we are believers, if we sin more or sin less, that does not change or affect God's love for us. If you're here and you're a believer and are an unbeliever, God cannot love you any more or any less. There's a special love for his sons and daughters, but he has a love for the whole world. Now, if you read your Bible this morning, it's not like God's love meter goes up for Zach, right? Or if I haven't read my Bible in a week now, ooh, the stock market's going down and God's love for Zach. No, it stays the same. His love is unchanging. And now we should possess this same love for the body of Christ. Again, think of the goodness of God. I'm getting ahead of myself, but God realized that we could not help ourselves. We could not get out of the predicament that we were in. So God sends his only son, whom he loves, who's perfect, sends him down to help humanity. Because humanity cannot help themselves. And now what did we do? We killed him. We killed God. We killed Jesus Christ. We couldn't help ourselves. He sends the only way of help. And how did we thank him? We killed him. And then how does God respond? With pure wrath, pure judgment, pure killing? No. He responds with even more love and grace. That's how God responded to us. So now how will we respond to others that hurt us, right? And again, I know it's difficult. I was trying to think of what's the best real world example, right? All I could think of was imagine a guy that's about to ask for a girl's hand in marriage. He knows he's marrying way up. He's not the best of guys, but he's late to get to the house and he's driving in traffic and he cuts this guy off. They start getting in an argument. He gives him a couple of hand signals, right? And he just keeps driving and he gets to the house. He pulls out of the house. He gets the flowers and then a car pulls in right behind them, right? Who is it? The guy he's about to ask for his daughter's hand in marriage, right? How is that going to go when they get inside the house? Nice to meet you, sir, right? That's basically what we did to the Lord. He sent his only son to save us, and we killed him. And then even after he died and resurrected, how often did we turn our back on him? Say, we don't want that. We want to do things our way. Again, this love that he's given to us, We need to have, we need to possess and have for one another. The third characteristic of God, it's found in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. 
And that is, God is life. God is life itself. In verse 11 it says, And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He continues there in verse 12 and 13. He says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Again, the third mark of a true child of God is that we have to have the life of God. And now some of us may be looking around a little worried, right? Someone passed out, someone dead next to us, right? Because they don't have the love of God. It's not talking about a pulse. It's not talking about our lungs or our heart working. It's speaking about the absolute fullness of life. Both in our essence, that means that we possess life itself, and in our morals, that our morals come from God himself. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 10, 10, Jesus gives us the contrast between what Satan wants to do and his mission and what he wants to do in his mission. In John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. Not just in this world, but in the world to come. Right? You look at a seed, when does a seed really start its life? When it's buried and when it dies in the ground. That's when it germinates and its life really starts. It's the same for each and every one of us. Our life really starts once we've been buried and put in the ground. And that's when our life will really begin. But we need to decide now... As we're still seeds, before we're in the ground, what kind of a life are we going to live later on? What is our real life going to look like? Again, here in the Greek, it is life real and genuine. It's a life that's active and vigorous, a life that is devoted to God. And because it's devoted to God, it's a blessed life. It's a life that the portion in this world of those who put their trust in Christ but after the resurrection, to be consummated by new acquisitions, among them a more perfect body. Guys, this is life itself. And there are many, sadly, people and even believers that you look at their faces and they have no life. Right? There's that famous quote from William Wallace. He says, every man dies, but not every man really lives. Every man dies, but not every man really lives. Again, for some believers, their spirit animal is Eeyore the donkey, right? That's their spirit animal. They walk into church, they're mopey, they're sad. How you doing? I'm doing great, brother, right? Everything they do. Good morning to their wife. Hi, honey, right? Everything. Everything is just bored, right? There's people walking around this world, and they are the walking dead, literally, Right? They have no life. They have no joy because they have no purpose. Again, family, having this life from God means that we're going to walk in the light and not in darkness. And it means that we're going to walk in this supernatural love that God has given us, that God has bestowed upon us. Again, family, there's no greater mission in life than being on a mission for God. And God's desire is to give each and every one of us a mission 
to give each and every one of us a purpose, right? When there's someone you love and respect and they give you a mission, do we not take it wholeheartedly? Right? Maybe it's your mom or your abuela, right? And they send you to Sedanos to get some cascos de guayava, right? And if it's someone you love, someone you care about, yes, ma'am, right? And you go and you're on a mission. And you get the biggest thing you could get because of how much you love them and you care about them, right? And that's the mission and the life that we can have from God himself, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who possesses life itself, wants to give each and every one of us a mission and a purpose. But because of our pride, we say, no, 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 I want to do things my way. I want to live life my way. I want to fulfill my lusts. I want to fulfill my desires. I want to do whatever is easy. I want to do whatever's fun. I want to do whatever gives me happiness right now this second. And what's the path for people who live that way? No life. They're zapped of life. They have no purpose. They have very few people around them that really care for them or love them because their whole purpose in life is to fulfill themselves. Again, God warns us that sin is bad and is evil. And God is warning us because sin is actually bad and evil. It's not that God's just saying that, that all of a sudden now if God would say, hey, sin is good for you, and we do it, that is going to all of a sudden change. Sin is evil. The wages of sin is death no matter what. But now we try to think, oh, God's just trying to take away this thing that's super duper fun. And if God would only change his mind, if the church would only change their mind, then we could live in this way and everything would be okay. But that's not the truth. What makes arsenic poisonous? It's because it's arsenic. If I put it in a Hawaiian punch bottle, is it now healthy? Is it now okay? No, you're still going to die. I remember growing up, I don't know why my parents did this, right? We, we didn't have that much money, so now it kind of makes sense. But we used to have like Drano or uh, degreaser, right? And they would put it in empty juice bottles. So you just have this empty juice bottle with a pretty pink juice in it, right? It's a little scary, a little dangerous. So what they started doing is they started drawing right, the skull and crossbones under it. So that as kids, <laughs> we knew, okay, don't drink the pretty pink fluid, right? Now, if they would put that in a normal bottle, right, a Sunny D, and we would drink it, would we be okay? No, it's still poison. And the same is true with sin. Sin is poisonous. Whether someone says it is or it isn't, it is still poisonous. It does not change the substance of what it is. And apart from God, everything is poisonous. And sin is living a life apart from God. God is life itself, so anything out from him is going to lead to sin is going to lead to death. Again, if we're a true son or daughter of God, we're going to have the light of God, we're going to have this love of God, and we're going to have the life of God. And when we possess this, it will give us the joy that can only come from God. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, it says, These things we write to you that your joy may be full. And now we begin to look at John's purpose in writing this book. One of the purposes was that the joy of these believers that he's writing to, their joy would be full. Their joy would be complete. It wouldn't just be scratching the surface, wouldn't be a little bit, wouldn't be halfway, but that their joy would be complete. We'll look at that later on. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, another purpose of John writing this book. He says, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. So John, he hopes that our joy would be full, and John desires that we would stop sinning, that we would sin less and less. In chapter 2, verse 21, another reason he wrote this book, 
He says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. He's saying, hey guys, you know better. You know the truth. Don't be following all these fake Jesuses going out there or these false doctrines, these false teachers going out there. You know the truth. Then in verse 26, he continues the same theme. He says, these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. Finally, in 1 John 5, Verse 13, the last purpose, probably the chief purpose of John writing this book. We read it earlier. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. John's desire is that we as believers would know without a shadow of a doubt that we have eternal life, and that we would continue to believe in the name of Jesus Christ, right? The Son of God. And Chuck Smith, he says, notice how these are tied together. My fullness of joy, chapter 1, verse 4, comes from my assurance of salvation, chapter 5, verse 13. And my assurance of salvation comes from my victory over sin, chapter 2, verse 1. I'll say that again. Notice how these three are tied together. My fullness of joy, chapter 1, verse 4, comes from my assurance of salvation, chapter 5, verse 13, which comes from my victory over sin, chapter 2, verse 1. Again, if you remember Resurrection Sunday, we looked at Romans 6 and how Jesus has purchased and given us victory over sin. We don't have to sin. We are now children of the light. We can walk in the light. And not walk in darkness. And First John, it's even a powerful book even for us today because people are still creating their own version of Jesus. They got this type of Jesus, that type of Jesus, this Jesus, that Jesus. But there's only one true Jesus. It's also a very powerful book because people today want to tell us that truth is relative. Truth can't be truth. Right, if you remember Ken Graves, he always likes to go on this uh, tangent, right? How today our language has even changed. That we want to say that something is a truth or a fact or a thought process. What we actually say is, I feel like this is what happened, right? I feel like this is the truth. I feel like this is a fact. I feel like, so now what the world has taught us is that truth is not truth. Truth is relative depending on our emotions and our experiences. This may be a truth to you, but I had a bad experience with that, so it has to be my truth now. No, God's word is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And family, this truth is worth standing on and proclaiming for the rest of our lives because it is the truth of creation, the truth of the beginning. It's the truth of the purpose of life. It's the truth of salvation and the truth of the only way we can enjoy heaven for all of eternity. Let's go to verse 1. And he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Again, John starts this off very similar to John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. He says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, right, one of the most famous scriptures, all the baseball fans like it, right? In the beginning, God, right? In the beginning, God is there, not the big inning, but no, in the beginning was God, right? He's always existed. 
Never created, never made, always existed. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22 and 23, it's speaking of wisdom. Wisdom, right? What is the beginning of wisdom? As the fear of the Lord all goes back to Jesus. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22 and 23, it says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. Before his works of old, I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. And then finally, Colossians chapter 1, I encourage you to turn there. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 18, Paul, he writes this letter to a church. And again, the power of who Jesus Christ is. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body. The church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Again, Jesus has been from the beginning. The creator of the heavens and earth. He is the one that possesses life itself. That's the word that John uses here, right? He doesn't say in the beginning Jesus or Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah, Jesus my friend. He says the word of life at the end there of verse 1. And he uses this word in the Greek, a word called logos. It's not the logos on your phone. It's not the logos on your clothes. It's a word here that Greek philosophers used as the cause for all of life. The Greeks, they were big into philosophy. And as they looked at the world, all the creation of the world, all of the effects going on in the world, they determined that there had to be a cause behind all the effects that they were seeing. And the word they gave that was this word in the Greek, logos. It's this eternal and all-powerful being that has made earth and life itself. And now John is saying, hey, that all-powerful thing, That all-powerful cause that has created all of life to spin and work and the air in our lungs and the purpose we have, I've heard him. I've seen him. I've touched him. I know who he is. I have spent time with him. This all-powerful being has come to earth itself to make himself available to us. John is saying that he has had a personal experience with this eternal one. Family, do you have that? Do you have a personal experience with the one who life flows out of? Do you have that experience? Do you have that relationship with him? That the more time you spend with him, the more joy your life has, the more meaning your life has, the more you're able to go through the good and bad and ugly of life? Again, John is saying that he's heard, he's seen, he's looked at, he's handled the cause behind all of life itself. Again, this is what we're to do, proclaim what we've seen, what we've heard, what our hands have handled. Adam Clark, he says, we deliver nothing by hearsay, nothing by tradition, nothing from conjecture. We have had the fullest certainty of all that we write and preach. Again, it all comes from Jesus. We talked about it on Wednesday night with 2 Peter. My desire as I'm preparing for a Bible study is not like, ooh, let me come up with something new that they've never heard before. 
It's just reminding us of all truths that we already know that we simply need to be reminded of. Right? That last song we sung, How Great Thou Art, right? What a great time of worship. Is that the first time anyone has heard that song, right? You're like, wow, I never actually thought about how great God is. Whoa, mind blown today, right? No, we just forgot about it. We weren't thinking about it. And now to hear another 100, 200 people singing the same truth touched us on our heart, right? It worked in us, the reminder of how good our God is. And that's what we need from God's word is just to be reminded of truths we already know that we're still not being obedient to, right? He says we have heard and we have seen in the perfect tense, saying that it's still going on today. We still see and hear the power of Jesus through the word of God. That when we're reading our Bibles today, maybe you got a red letter version, right? And you're reading those red letters of Jesus Christ. You are seeing and hearing the power of Jesus Christ today. I was talking to a pastor, a friend of mine. He was on a mission trip out in the Middle East. Can't go into too much details because of how crazy things are. But we were praying for him. And on his mission trip, he went completely by faith there in the Middle East, dangerous areas. And he told me, hey, Zach, God has answered your prayers. My kids were praying for him. I said, hey, tell the kids, God answered their prayers. There was a man who was a part of a terrorist organization that had Jesus appear to him in a dream and told him to drive three hours to another city because there he would meet Jesus. And there, that's where this guy drives three hours to walk into this little Bible study to hear from a pastor all the way from the U.S. to hear about Jesus. Again, the power of Jesus, it's still happening today. Perfect tense, it's still going on today. We have heard, we have seen the power of Christ. We looked upon him past tense. That's not us. This is John speaking of the physical form of Jesus. So again, he's hitting the agnosticism head on. He's saying he wasn't a spirit. I saw him. I heard him. He says our hands have handled him, right? Think of the memories that John must have had spending life with Jesus, being on the boat with him, right? And Jesus is napping and they're all freaking out, having Jesus multiply the bread and the fish right there before him, having Jesus break the communion and hand it to him, seeing Jesus dying upon the cross, seeing Jesus resurrected, waiting on the seashore for them with bread and fish ready to eat with them. John thinking of the Last Supper, right, and how he laid his head on Jesus. And he's saying he was real. He was fully God and fully man, and none of us can understand that. But that is who he was. John's also showing us that he has a platform on which to stand concerning Jesus. He knows this subject, right? You may know, right, to know you may be a part of Gnosticism, but I truly know him. I've met with him. I've had fellowship with him. And that's what he goes into. Verse 2, the life was manifested and we have seen and we bear witness and we declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Right? That life, that word of life, life itself, the essence of life is Jesus Christ. And now he says it was manifested to us. We saw him. We are witnesses of him, and now we must declare the eternal life that was once with God the Father. It came down to us. Again, family, how we should be declaring the life that we possess, the eternal life we have, right? 
Again, if you talk to many people around you and you say, man, I have joy, I have life, I have purpose, I have energy. If they're willing to get over their pride, they're going to say, where did you get this from? How do you have purpose in life? How do you have joy with everything that's going on? What is it that you have? And you can tell them that you have Christ. You have the word of life, that we have eternal life. John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. We read it earlier, right? John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the life. Again, this life that was manifested, we've seen, we've bared witness of it. It came to this earth, it lived a perfect life, died on the cross for us, and resurrected, defeating the grave, defeating sin and death itself. Verse 3, that which we have seen and we heard, we declare to you. Again, we need to share with others. And what's his reason for declaring this? That you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Right? This word fellowship, we throw it around a lot in Christian circles, right? Anybody honest here and has no clue what fellowship actually means, right? I was hearing a, a pastor, he says when he first got saved, him and his friend went to a church and they said, hey, go out to the back to the fellowship hall. He says his friend walked in the backyard looking for a boat in the back of the church, right? Fellowship hall, right? And he just had no clue what it means, right? To some of us, we think fellowshipping with one another, yeah, yeah, that's when we eat together, right? We do that all the time at church. That's fellowshipping, just eating with each other, right? We don't have a Thanksgiving meal, we have a Thanksgiving fellowship now, right? Maybe for the young adults, it's to play volleyball. Hey, we're going to fellowship afterwards and play volleyball. That's what we're going to do with Jesus Christ, right? Just play volleyball with him, right? Now, that word fellowship, it's to have something in common. It's to have participation. It's sharing what you have. It's having contact and intimacy and a very close association with someone else. So now when we're saying we're fellowshipping, right, maybe we're not going to use that word as often anymore, right? You're saying, I want to have close association with you. And the way we do that is through breaking bread, speaking about the spiritual things that God is doing in our life, playing a game together, eating together, sharing life together. And again, John's desire is that the church would have fellowship with John and with whoever the us is, right, maybe this church of Ephesus, and he says, truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The only way we can have fellowship with the body of Christ is if we have fellowship with God and with Jesus. That's the only way we'll have true fellowship. Right? Sometimes there's people that come to church and they get angry and annoyed. They say, nobody wants to talk to me. Nobody likes me. This, that, or the third. But they don't want to look at the word being the mirror of their lives that they're clinging to sin. They're clinging to darkness. And now believers don't want to have fellowship with darkness because God tells us don't have fellowship with darkness, right? And now we say, why can't we have fellowship together? Why don't you like me? Why can't we be best friends? Because you're not having something in common. You're not having intimacy. You're not having oneness with God the Father and with Jesus Christ the Son. And if we don't have that, then we can't have fellowship with one another. On the flip side of that, we should have a desire to have fellowship with the body of Christ. Right, when was the last time you did have a meal with somebody else from church? When you did play a game with someone else from church, right? Your spouse doesn't count, right? Yeah, I fellowship all the time with believers, right? Me and my wife, we go out on a date and I'm fellowshipping, right? No, with the whole body of Christ, right? Do we sometimes forget what heaven is going to be all about? 
stuck with each other, right? For all of eternity, right? That's what heaven is all about. Some of us, we don't really want to have fellowship with God. You realize what heaven is all about? It's being in his presence, having fellowship with God for all of eternity. Getting to know him in a deeper and deeper way, learning new things about him for all of eternity. And if we don't desire that now, are you going to desire that in heaven? Again, do we desire this fellowship, this having participation with God, sharing with God, having this contact, having this very close association with God? And family, this is the purpose of life itself, is having fellowship with God. It's to know the cause of all life, which is in Jesus Christ. The ultimate fulfillment in life, it's not in getting married, it's not in having a kid or a grandkid or paying off your house. The ultimate fulfillment in life is knowing Jesus in a deeper way. That's the only way we can have fulfillment. It's to know him, to have fellowship with him, to spend time with him. And later on, right, he's going to warn us that if we hate other believers, we can't expect to have fellowship with God. All of these three things work together. We should have fellowship with God, and then we should have fellowship with each other. We can't have fellowship with each other if we don't have fellowship with God. We can't say we have fellowship with God if we don't have fellowship with each other, right? We need to have all of these three things taking place in our lives. We'll look at that more later on. And then finally, verse 4, And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Again, John he makes his purpose clear to us. He wants the joy of believers to not be shallow, to not be immature, to not be 25% of joy or 50% of joy. He wants it to be full, to be perfect, to be complete. That word joy is the word gladness. It's to have delight. Here in the Greek, it's really the source of joy. That our source of joy, right, that we'd be connected to the source of joy and that it would be full. And where do we get that source of joy? It's by having an awareness of God's grace. Having an awareness of God's grace. And as we've been looking at, right, Exodus, how God talks to Moses and tells him about his goodness, about his grace, right? What's God's grace? His goodness towards us. And the more we realize that, the more we think on that, the more we're going to have that joy, that we're reminded, man, Lord, I had no way of getting out of this mess. You sent your only son to help me out of this mess, and then I killed him. Then he resurrected, he defeated sin, he defeated death. And then what did I still do? I wanted to go after sin. I wanted to go after the very things that nailed him upon that cross. And yet you're still good to me. You're still gracious to me. How that should blow us away, how we should have joy in this. And again, joy... It's not happiness. It's something so much deeper than that, right? Maybe you're on your way home later on after service and you remember you have a piece of Carvel ice cream cake in the house, right? And all of a sudden you have joy. You have happiness, right? You just remembered, oh man, and it's got the extra chocolate crunchies all around. Oh man, you're super excited, right? You drive home, you're all happy, all full of joy, right? Then you get home and you open that freezer and then what just happened? The joy's gone. The happiness is gone. Then you look at the table and then it's your son there or your kid or your wife, your husband. They just finished eating the joy, right? <laughs> and now what are you taking over with? Anger. That joy is gone. Not just anger, jealousy, envy. That's not what joy is. 
Joy remains the same no matter what we go through because that joy is connected to God's goodness. And God's goodness is never changing. We talked about the love of God, how it's never changing. His love for us stays the same. John's desire is that our connection to this joy would be full and complete, that we'd be fellowshipping with him, that no matter the highs and lows of life, we still have joy. Because we're still conscious of God's goodness towards our lives. Right? That we could sing that song, right? No matter what happens, I'm still grateful for God. I'm still thankful for God. I'm still thankful for what he's done for me. Right? No matter what. No matter what happens in life. That's where true joy comes from. Hebrews 13 verse 8 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our source of joy is constant. It's never going to run out. It's never going to stop. There's never going to be a crisis when it comes to being connected to this joy. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So how do we make sure our joy is complete? By being filled with the light of God. You're not going to have that joy from God if you're walking in darkness. You're not going to have that joy that can only come from God if you're living in sin over and over and over again. How can we make sure our joy is complete? By being filled with the love of God. Having that selfless love from God to us. We're accepting it. We're living in it. And now we're also giving it to other people. If we're bitter at others and angry at others and unforgiving to other people, you're not going to have that joy. Finally, how do we make sure that joy is complete? By being filled with the life of God. That our life is not about my own purposes My own desires, what makes me happy, what's going to make me feel good. My life's purpose is to be obedient to God, to be on God's mission. So when we're filled with the light of God, when we're filled with the love of God, when we're filled with the life of God, we're going to be filled with the joy of God. And then no matter what comes, good, bad, or ugly, we're going to be able to say, right, it is well with my soul. No matter what, it is well, because one day I'm going to see him in heaven. Yeah, this bad thing just happened, but man, God still forgave me. God still loves me. God has still given me so much. I didn't deserve any of this. So again, that quote from Chuck Smith, right? How these three things are tied together. My fullness of joy comes from my assurance of salvation. That assurance of salvation comes from my victory over sin. That we would walk in the light as he is the light. 